Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this festive edition of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill and uh, we've now reached episode 14, accompanying my great-great-grandfather William Mowbray Scott on his travels around Europe and the rest of the world, taken from his journals written in the 1840s. So I suppose I'll just begin the usual things If you want to listen to previous episodes, they're all available on pretty well every podcast platform that you can think of. So um, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn. And if you just Google it, it should come up. It's on YouTube as well, sorry. And uh, yeah, if you Google it, a grand tour with my great-great-granddad, you'll see the results there. I think the Acast website comes up first, but then uh, it's uh, all the other things. And also, if you want to follow me in regards to the podcast, then uh, there's also a Twitter page, Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. That's the number three, 3G Grand Tour. And there's also a Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. Right, that's all that stuff out of the way. So this is being recorded in the Christmas period Boxing Day, in fact, of 2022. So uh, I'm recording this while my children are still asleep (laughs) and recovering from the excitement of uh, yesterday. So uh, hopefully um, (laughs) they're so worn out from yesterday that I can get this introduction done before chaos ensues again. Just to say where we are in this point of William's journey... This next episode is really a little bit of him finishing off his time in Turin. He's he's got into Italy now, although it's, uh, the actually he's in the kingdom of Sardinia in Piedmont, and he's making his way to Milan from Turin. So this episode begins with a little bit of his time in Turin. He's just a couple of days in Turin, and then continuing his journey through that bit of northern Italy to get to Milan, which of course is the location of the railway where he's going to start working as an engineer and railway driver on this newly built, virtually the first steam railway in Italy. In fact, what actually happens is he gets to Milan and he still has about three weeks before he starts work on the railway itself. I think it's probably because the steam engines that are being exported from the UK are... um, 
still on their way to the railway. The railway's been built, but uh, the actual steam locomotives that are going to pull the carriages and wagons hasn't arrived yet, so he's still awaiting those. I think it's a really nice episode, actually. There's some there's some nice moments coming up about things he was observing as an Englishman encountering this part of northern Italy's culture for the first time. As with most of the journals, there's quite a focus on the religious aspects of life and being a Protestant in a profoundly Roman Catholic area of Europe at that time creates quite an impression on him. But it's also nice because uh, he's observing some of the uh, local traditions as well and dress and things in this area. So really that's uh, about it to say on this episode. Witted on again, too much. So uh, this is the next episode, 14. I do hope you enjoy it. in I found myself near the Pont del Po, which is a new marble church built by the last and present monarchs, in the form of a rotunda like the Pantheon at Paris. This is intended as the burying place of the present dynasty. This church also must have cost an enormous sum of money, as the whole of the materials are of the richest kind. Not far from this is the Capuchin Monastery, a building of large size but not possessing much architectural pretensions. Just to explain, the Capuchin monks are um, essentially they're Franciscan monks, a particular order that try to live their lives as close to uh, St Francis of Assisi. Or to quote Morgan Wise, that Francis of Assisi, he was Assisi. Uh, no, St Francis of Assisi, they basically live their lives as close to St Francis of Assisi and his example, you know, so very austere, simple life. They sort of emerged around the 1500s, and they're, and they're still around today, but they're a kind of, uh, what's the word, hardline. <laughs> they're kind of hardline group of Franciscan monks, to put it very, very simplistically. Villa della Regina, or Palace of the Queen, also situated in this part of the suburbs, is a charming spot. There are two bridges across the River Po. The old bridge of five arches is an elegant specimen of art, built entirely of granite and marble, and combining a light and airy span with perfect solidity of structure. The new bridge crosses the river with only one arch, with the enormous span of 168 feet, and is a most remarkable light structure, as well as being particularly elegant. The piers or landwork that this immense arch abuts against are of enormous size and strength, though hid from the eye of the casual observer by being under the roadway. About half a league from the city on the banks of the Po is the beautiful and celebrated Castle of Valentine, the gardens of which are very extensive and applied to botanical studies. 
1798, the French Republican forces took possession of the city. The king and his family fled to the island of Sardinia. Then, in 1799, the French were driven out by the Austrians and Prussians. And shortly after this, the city and all of Piedmont surrendered to Napoleon. After the Battle of Marengo, Turin was made the second city of the French Empire and the capital of the Department of the Po. It was greatly improved by Napoleon. In 1814, it was delivered up to the Allies who restored it to the King of Sardinia. Population 118,000. 25 leagues southwest of Milan, 23 leagues northwest of Genoa. Sunday, April 12th. Left Turin by diligence at four in the afternoon. About a league from Turin, and in less space than half a mile, we crossed three large and rapid rivers. These rivers flow from the mountains, and in the spring and summer, always contain the greatest quantity of water occasioned by the melting of the snow. We were now in the country called by travellers the Garden of Europe, and I can also bear witness that the accounts are not exaggerated. The country abounds with water power sufficient to drive all the machinery of England, and by these means, however dry the seasons, by the process of irrigation, which is well understood and extensively practised in this part of Italy, they can always ensure the fertility of the soil. Whichever way you turn, cornfields, vineyards, Immense numbers of mulberry trees intermixed with cherries, apricots and peaches meet the admiring gaze. At the time of my journey, they was all full of blossom, and the scene was enchanting beyond description. Nor was there any want of timber. Oak, walnut, and the two kinds of chestnut were also in great abundance. At three o'clock the morning before, we had been covered in snow and shivering with cold. But then, in about four hours' travelling distance, the heat was almost insufferable, and the air swarming with flies. It certainly is most surprising, and scarcely credible to those who have not witnessed it, the amazing change of temperature betwixt the mountain and the plain, especially in the spring, though since I have been on this side of the Atlantic, I have felt and undergone greater changes of temperature in shorter distances than I ever did in Europe. The part of Italy betwixt Turin and Novara is generally of a level nature, relieved with gentle undulations of surface, the road running perfectly straight and in very excellent condition. The villages were large and much better built than those we had passed through in Piedmont. We changed horses at Rosalba, Verua, or Verua Savoia, I think it's now known as, and Leri, and the latter in an extremely pretty spot. At this part of the journey, the moon was at the full, and in that delightful climate, its brilliancy is so great that you can see to read the smallest print with ease. The air during the night was also very mild, so that made the journey through the night quite a pleasure. We arrived at Navarra about six o'clock in the morning of the 13th, where we had to stop about three hours before we could procure a coach to get forward. Navarra is a place of considerable size and the capital of the province of that name. It contains a fine cathedral of marble in the Grecian style of architecture, the high altar of which is well executed, as is also that dedicated to the Virgin. The cathedral stands upon a lofty eminence and is visible from a great distance. There are also 17 other churches and chapels and some monasteries. The town is well built, with streets running at right angles with each other and kept tolerably clean. There are some tolerable hotels, cafes, etc. Population 13,000, nine leagues west by south of Milan. I'm just going to break in briefly here because this phrase that William uses about um, 
the streets being well laid out and running parallel to each other and at right angles to each other, etc. It's something that he says quite often in the journals. I don't know what it is, his preoccupation with how regularly the streets are laid out. Actually, I've got to admit, I've learned something I thought that was quite a relatively new thing that started in America with the streets of New York being laid out in block-by-block sections. But actually, I'm proven well wrong. Streets were being laid out in squares and blocks right from Roman and Greek times. So, well, well, Greek and even Egyptian times, sorry. So there we are. <laughs> I've learned something that I, I didn't know. So perhaps it's sort of understandable and maybe why William does compare how the streets are laid out from various places that he visits and actually yeah if you look at the map of the center of navarra it is you can see it is sort of laid out on quite an obvious sort of grid system but that's dating back to medieval times also just to say i think the cathedral he mentions there uh, isn't there anymore the navarra cathedral now was built in about 1860 and is actually a a neoclassical design with with great big columns and things at the front of it so um and unfortunately, I can't find easily any pictures of what the old cathedral looked like. I had a bit of a hunt and just nothing obvious, no etchings, nothing seems to immediately appear. So I don't know, I'll have to maybe do a bit more hunting around to see if I can find something. But at the moment, really only got William's description <laughs> to go by, which isn't very much. But in Marara, I think, does he say 20,000 people living there? It's apparently about over 100,000 people live there now. So that gives you an idea of the expansion of the, I think it's the city now, Navarra, rather than a town. But in that time when William was travelling, it was an important point in the journey between Turin and Milan. So it's definitely the route that most people would have gone through Navarra whilst on their way from Turin to Milan. The province of Navarra is divided into upper and lower districts. The lower one is a flat country and very fruitful. Upper Navarra resembles in many respects the cantons of Switzerland, and the degree of comfort enjoyed by the inhabitants is more owing to their industry than to the fertility of the soil. This province has a territorial extent of 14,000 square miles and a population of 227,000 persons. Having with considerable difficulty procured a conveyance, it being one of their high festival days, we once more set forward, and as soon as we were outside the town, we could see the road stretching up a gentle hill for many miles before us. About eleven, we arrived at the river Ticino, a broad and rapid stream which forms the boundary betwixt the Lombardy Venetian kingdom and the dominion of the king of Sardinia. The Ticino flows from the Lago Maggiore, that's uh, Lake Maggiore, and falls into the poet Pavia. It is at this place about 800 yards across, and there is a very handsome bridge built entirely of granite. There are 12 arches besides two small land arches. It is perfectly level on the roadway, and one thing that particularly attracted my attention was the immense size of the generality of the blocks of granite used in its construction. We walked across the bridge and stopped at least half an hour in examining it. This splendid work was built under the superintendence of a French engineer by command of Napoleon. As usual with all frontier bridges, there is a gate at each end with proper houses for the guards and police, over the doors of which on one side is the shield and cross of Sardinia and over the other the imperial black eagle of Austria. At a short distance from this, we arrived at the town of Buffalora, where the frontier custom house is 
and immediately proceeded thither to deliver our passports and have our luggage examined for the last time. This ceremony was soon over, but a similar delay to that at Navarra took place before we could procure a carriage. Whilst standing at the door of the inn, I perceived the crowded congregation of a church on the opposite side of the street, in the act of dispersing, and the headdresses of the females struck me with astonishment, and afterwards I found they were universally worn by the female peasantry of Lombardy. This headdress consists of a number of flat pins, finely carved and worked, and about the size of the handle of a teaspoon. These are placed in the hair at the back of the head in the shape of a fan. I have counted as many as thirty-five frequently, and in some instances forty. Below these, and also twisted in the hair, is a wire about a foot in length, and at each end of it an oval ball, something the size of a pigeon's egg. A great number of the richer peasantry have these of solid silver, whilst some of them are only plated. It is the custom of this country, when a marriage takes place, for the bridegroom to purchase the headdress, and a number of rings for the fingers, and a splendid neck-chain and earrings and I must say that a considerably ridiculous appearance some of them cut with all this finery, especially as I have often seen them trudging on the roads under the blazing sun and nearly smothered with dust, and at the same time minus shoes and stockings. OK, going to butt in here about a couple of things from this last extract of the journal. The first is this Napoleonic bridge that um, William describes, and the second is the... Uh, traditional headdresses that the ladies of Lombardy seem to be wearing. The first thing about this Napoleonic Bridge, it was begun in 1808 and um, then work stopped and then work was taken up again in 1821 and the actual bridge that completed bridge that William would have been looking at was by an architect called Stefano Ignazio Melchioni and uh, just to explain there is a very similar bridge still there today. It's a railway bridge and it was rebuilt several times. But the bridge that's there today actually looks very, very similar to the one that William's describing in the fact that it's got lots of arches. And um, it's known as the Buffalora Bridge over the Ticine, though. I think for some reason I must have been interested in it when I was um, doing the original transcribing of the journals because I've obviously gone to the trouble of trying to find a picture of it and... Um, I think there's a possibility that the artist William Turner, as well, on his travels around um, Europe and Italy, did a sketch of it, and a, possibly a painting. There's a painting of his that he's done with a bridge of lots of arches over the Ticino River. It's called Bridge Over the Ticino River, so it's quite a stylized, one of his later stylized works, so it's not exactly done in great detail, but I did find an etching of it as well, but... Uh, as with a lot of images these days, it's quite hard to use them sometimes because they are copyright is owned by the likes of uh, Getty. But it is this very flat bridge. So at the time, I suppose that was what was impressive about it, aside from the large blocks of granite. And indeed, it is mentioned about it being exclusively made of granite from a certain area of Italy. And obviously, we'll go back to this thing again of... Bridges impressing people, again, William being an engineer, I suppose, he looked at it from a construction point of view and thought, yes, that's well built. And uh, strategically, actually, it was quite an important bridge, um, I suppose it would be, in, in the sense. Um, the reason Napoleon wanted it built was he got fed up. He was on his one of his campaigns into Italy, and he got fed up because he got stuck at the Ticino River. So then, after he'd managed to cross the river, he demanded that a bridge be built, and it became quite an important strategic bridge 
through several military campaigns, Italian unification, and even right up until the Second World War, it was an important bridge. In fact, uh, the British actually tried to bomb it uh, at some point, but missed. <laughs> so <laughs> there we are. We sent a load of uh, World War Two bombers over there to uh, to try and demolish it because it was a, an important strategic point for the armies of the Second World War and... Um, on this occasion, it wasn't the success of the Dam Busters, uh, because apparently we missed it. <laughs> and it's still standing today, but the bridge that's there today isn't, pretty certain, isn't the actual one Williams observing. But um, it has been there a long time. Now, it's just, as I say, it's just a railway bridge. I thought it was just quite interesting, because William Turner possibly painted it. So if you look at that bridge over the Ticino painting you should see it. it should come up the trouble is of course turner did an awful lot of bridges and sketches so it's sometimes quite hard to identify which is which and indeed i'm not exactly sure this is the bridge that the one the painting i think is one he did is the same but it looks very similar so i thought i'd just discuss it really i don't know why i think it's because it was william was so impressed by its engineering and then i in my research, I discovered that that actual bridge isn't there anymore. I mean, it's amazing, really, over the years how things are demolished and rebuilt. But the the version that is there today still looks very similar. Actually, as William describes it, I think it's 12 arches or 11 arches, two on the land. I managed to find eventually find some drone footage of it because it's actually quite hard to pin it down. Um, and, and find what the, the bridge is there, because I suppose these days it's just considered a rather nondescript railway bridge. But I finally found some drone footage, because there are actually two bridges side by side. There's this one, and then there's a more modern road bridge built probably only about 300 yards further down or up the river from it. But it's, it's where the high-speed railway line goes from um, Turin to Milan. So the high-speed railway line goes over it. And um, just goes to show you, the engineering at the time, I think there was an element of it being considered an engineering feat that was meant to look impressive. Again, all part of sort of Napoleon's way of imprinting his uh, his will, but also his kind of regime onto the people of Europe by demonstrating what great works of engineering he could achieve and would be responsible for. Moving on to the headdress that William mentions the peasantry wearing in this part of Lombardy, I'm indebted actually to a a website, also to a blog called Folk Costume and Embroidery, and I think it's researched by someone called Roman Corsacand. It's a very good website if you want to know about European and wider world folk costumes. So I must thank Roman for the website because uh, it certainly helped me to find out more about this particular type of headdress that the ladies were wearing in uh, Lombardy at this time. William describes it pretty well really. Basically the women would put their hair in a knotted bun at the back and then in it you get this fan of as he says spoon-like hairpins with a bit of an ornate decoration at the end that's then placed into the top of the, the bun, and so it creates this sort of fan effect around the top of the head, almost like a bit of a halo, I suppose. And then, quite weirdly, underneath the bun is um, this long hairpin with, as he describes, egg-like shaped globes 
either end that holds the whole ensemble or creation together. And it is very elaborate when I can see would be, if they were made of solid silver, obviously would be quite valuable. They were worn by women in this Alpine region of Italy and a bit into Switzerland as well. So there's a kind of, because, you know, you get the kind of crossing of the borders. So it's a kind of traditional costume of bits of Switzerland and Alpine Italy. Later, as time evolved, you can imagine, because it was quite a hard thing to put in the hair, and I imagine it was a rather involved process of doing it. It was obviously quite an elaborate thing to put together. It sort of evolved. I think first they joined the pins together so they could all be put together in one go. And then later on, I think then that it evolved into more like a, a lace fan of similar shapes rather than uh, actual hairpins or spilloni, as they're called. And uh, sorry, the whole costume or headdress thing is called a la regalia. I might have to get me Italian pronunciation sorted on that. Lara regalia. But it is the traditional dress. I think the interesting comment about this is that William at the end says, oh, they look rather ridiculous with these very, very elaborate headdresses on, and yet they're going around covered in dust and they've got no shoes and stockings on. But, of course, I suppose that's the very essence of what traditional folk dress was. (laughs) You know, it was what people were wearing every day during that time, you know, whether they had shoes or not. It's interesting because... The research would suggest it was mainly worn on sort of festival days and high feast days. But here we are, Williams was saying that they were wearing it all the time. Interesting kind of attitude you get there from William about it. I mean, they look very impressive. I'm sure you'd probably think it's very attractive headgear if a bit involved. (laughs) Of course, I'll post a picture of it on the Twitter feed and, and on the Facebook page of it so you can get a sense of it. And as I say... It's that traditional dress of the time worn by the folk people of the time. So I don't suppose William should really be that surprised that they're also wearing it while they haven't got shoes or stockings on. Bufalora contains six churches, two of them very respectable edifices, and being situated on one of the most frequented roads, there is considerable traffic through it. A good deal of common wine is made in the neighbourhood, and a great many silkworms are raised here. Population 4,500, five leagues southwest of Milan. At length the chase was ready, and we was again on our journey, changing horses at a small village, and my companion swearing all the way at the postillion for not driving fast enough. But as the old saying is, everything must have an end, and so had our journey, for at three o'clock we arrived safe at Milan. At this moment my friend went to a gentleman's house in the Corsa de Porto Romano, and I to the Hotel Reichmann, four doors from him. And as we were both much fatigued with our journey, having had so little rest from leaving Paris, I did ample justice to a most excellent dinner, and after imbibing a full allowance of brandy and water and discussing a cigar, basically means finishing off a cigar, I retired very early to rest. April 14th. This morning, on rising, I found that some alterations must take place on the outer man, and accordingly, having breakfasted, I betook myself to an hairdresser shop. Having seated myself on a chair, the operator produced a large brazen dish with a notch cut out on one side just to fit the person's neck. 
Having placed hot water in the vessel, he seized a large piece of soap and began to rub at the low extremity of my visage in good earnest. Having raised a lather to his satisfaction, he commenced trapping his razor with a great many flourishes, and then placing himself directly in front, he began waving his arm as if the cutting of my throat was to be the next part of the business. But just at that moment I heard the tinkling of a bell in the street, and the barber, instantly laying down his weapon, threw himself on his knees before the open door, and began crossing himself and muttering over his prayers, leaving me sitting there in the greatest astonishment. But, however, in a few minutes I was at the bottom of the whole mystery. A person passing the shop, carrying a cross borne aloft. After him, four boys in white surplices, two carrying large silver candlesticks, and the other censers in which incense was burning. Then came a priest clad in scarlet robes, and walking under a canopy of crimson cloth, borne by six men, about fifty old women with lighted candles bringing up the rear. And all this was so that the priest could administer the sacrament or extreme unction to a person in a dying state, the people here considering it one of the most unfortunate things that could happen either to them or their friends to die without having received it. And there was I, sitting in the confounded barber's shop for a full ten minutes, till the procession was both out of sight and hearing, before the stupid fellow would stir one step to complete the operation. It certainly was a circumstance that it was a warning to me, how I trusted myself in the hands of those gentry afterwards. I do like this little extract here of William getting stuck in the barber's shop with his uh, visage covered in shaving foam while the uh, barber genuflects <laughs> in the doorway as the procession goes past. It's got a nice little uh, humorous passage in the journals. Funny enough, one observation about that particular scene is that a little while ago, while uh, I was doing a, a trip for work to a, uh, a machine tool company in northern Italy, in the Lombardy region, to write an article about them, the company, very kindly, there were a load of us trade journalists there, and uh, on the way back from uh, having visited them, they kindly took us to a castle building in that region of Lombardy, as it's near, near Pavia, actually. And in one of the rooms, was we were being shown around the various coats of arms on the walls and portraits of uh, members of the uh, Visconti noble family of that area, of which this particular castle was one of their seats of power. In one of the rooms was a collection of these shaving bowls that William describes. And it's exactly that. It's like a big cereal bowl or soup bowl, but with a, a large brim and on a section of that brim cut out is a semicircular shape which goes round the person's neck. So obviously you hold it under your chin while you're shaving, which looks curious. They had, I think, one of the biggest collections of these types of uh, dishes in the world and they were all made out of different materials, ceramics, china, pewter, silver even. Uh, anyway, there were certainly hundreds if not thousands of these things on the walls of this particular room. I'd never seen one before, but if you Google something like antique shaving bowls or antique shaving dishes, you'll see images of these things come up. Uh, just to mention the Visconti family in that area of Milan, sort of subsequently I realised how close I was to the area that William was himself now, but they have this quite distinctive coat of arms where it's a, a snake eating a baby or a, or a small child. Um, so you've got this 
twisted snake or serpent with its mouth open with a with a half-eaten toddler <laughs> with his sort of top of his torso and head sticking out. Either that or it's um, someone actually being born out of a serpent's mouth. There doesn't seem to be any exact origin story for it. Some have linked it to possibly the uh, tale of Jonah and the whale, where the whale in biblical times is sometimes represented more like a serpent than a whale. It's called the Bishoni, I think is the right pronunciation. But it's quite famous, actually. I think it's actually on the badge of the Inter Milan Football Club as well. So, um, But yeah, it's quite a distinctive coat of arms. And uh, I just remember them telling us about that at the time when we were doing this tour of this castle. Unfortunately, I can't remember the exact name of this castle in Lombardy, but it was near Pavia. As you can imagine, there are many, many castles in that region of Italy, many of them linked to the Visconti family, who were the dukes of the Lombardy and Milan region, dating back to, I think it's something like the 1300s and a bit prior to that. What was nice is they weren't actually open on the day we turned up, but they kindly agreed to do the tour for us anyway. There we are. That's the, uh, you know, the perks you get with the job of being in the trade press writing about machine tools. Uh, yep, those is the breaks. Anyway, so, so uh, yeah, I just thought I'd mention it, because these shaving dishes are quite curious-looking affairs. Poor old William, stuck in the in the barber's chair for ten minutes. It's like all covered in lather. It is quite a nice image, I must admit. And I do remember it was one of the ones that stuck in my head when I was first transcribing the journals way back in 2008. Having waited on the directors of the railway and ascertained that I should not be able to commence operations for at least three weeks, I at once settled to make myself as well acquainted with the city of Milan as possible and see everything that was worth attention. My first visit was to the cathedral, which is considered, with the exception of St Peter's at Rome, the finest in the world, and report has certainly not overrated its grandeur. This vast edifice is built entirely of white marble, and the various statues and sculptures that decorate the exterior is innumerable. Indeed, I have many times tried to count them, and have often been obliged to abandon the task in despair. The west, or principal front, is approached by a flight of steps reaching the whole length of the façade, and there are five doors to give admission into the edifice. Over the tops, and on the sides of those entrances, are exquisitely executed basso-reliefs of scripture history from the Old Testament. The serpent tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Paradise, Cain slaying Abel, the sacrifice of Noah after the deluge, Abraham offering his son Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah at the well. This is a most splendidly executed piece, and the impression of it at this moment so vivid in my mind, here in Zacatecas, Mexico, on the 28th of January, 1844, that I can almost fancy I see the servant of Isaac now drinking at the well. Jacob's dream of the ladder, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's wife changed into a pillar of salt, Moses found in the bulrushes, the children of Israel gathering manna and quails in the desert, Moses smiting the rock, 
the return of the spies from the promised land, Samson slaying the lion, Samson carrying away the gates of Gaza, the death of Samson by overthrowing the temple, Yale slaying Sisera, Elijah restoring the son of the widow to life, the death of Absalom, Susanna and the elders, and Tobit restoring his father's sight with the gall of fish. For those who are interested, it's actually Tobias restoring his father Tobit's sight with the gall of fish, but uh, William didn't have the advantage of looking things up on Google, so, so <laughs> we'll let him off that one. <laughs> The basso reliefs are intermixed with full-length figures of the saints, cardinals, bishops, etc. A great number of them portraits, wreaths of flowers and foliage of the most delicate workmanship round the two sides. And at the east end of the building are five distinct ranges of statues, a great number of them representing the martyrdom of the apostles and the early Christians, amongst whom I recognise St Peter with his head downwards, St Andrew on the X-Cross and St Bartholomew of the Gridiron. The architecture of this cathedral is a mixture of the Grecian with the Gothic, and though it may to some people present rather an incongruous appearance, yet it takes nothing from its grandeur. The cathedral viewed at a little distance appears almost like an edifice of paper, so rich is its lightness and gracefulness, and its airy and lofty pinnacles rising in every direction against the clear blue sky. In the centre is an octagonal tower which rises to a beautiful and lofty spire richly sculptured and crowned on the top with a figure of the Virgin to whom the church is dedicated. From the gallery that surrounds the spire a beautiful and widely extended prospect presents itself. It is refreshing to the spirits as well as delightful to the eye to contemplate the rich and glowing plains of Lombardy, stretching out like a vast garden bounded by the Alps and Apennines blue as the sky that canopies them, whilst the spiral pinnacles with their delicate tracery and multitude of statues, all white as the snow that caps the highest points of the Alps, affording a striking and beautiful contrast to the glorious landscape, art and nature here displaying their wonders. So I think at this point I should say a few words about Milan Cathedral, seeing as it's probably the most important building in the city at the time William was in Milan and uh, I mean it still is obviously a very very important Christian building and there are quite a few superlatives that one can say about it. I think aside from the Vatican which uh, William mentions it is the largest cathedral in Italy and uh, there are lots and lots of most of these and biggest of that <laughs> about it. But as ever, quite often, then there's a bit of confusion as well or contradictory information regarding it. But supposedly, it's either the third or the fifth largest Christian church in the world. And again, figures relating to these statues, which William mentions, he loses his way trying to count them all. Again, the figures there are very varied because it sort of depends what you interpret a statue as being. I think there's one thing probably seems pretty accurate. It is a very impressive cathedral. It's made of this marble, and because of this mixtures of styles, which William mentions, because it took six centuries to build, so it was begun in uh, 1386, but it wasn't completed until 1965, officially. In fact, some people say this is still being built, but 
officially in 1965 they completed the last bronze door these are very ornate bronze doors that was um, then installed in one of the entrances and that was deemed at the time to be the final bit of the jigsaw of the cathedral puzzle and uh, so it was declared finished in 65 according to one bit of research so their sculptures on the outside Sounds like it's 2,245. Other figures go up to 3,400. In fact, later, William himself will quote some figures about it that he had at the time, which, again, are slightly inaccurate as well. But, uh, I mean, obviously, it's still sort of changing. So over that time, there have been additions and uh, alterations made to it. But at the moment, going back to this mixtures of styles, Gothic and Baroque and various others... It's got all these very tall pinnacles on the roof. Very, very tall, very slender pinnacles. Uh, kind of a forest of them, it's described as. And there's apparently 135 of these. And on the top of every one is a statue of a saint or some biblical figure. So for a start, you've got 135 of those ones. The very most prominent one is a golden statue of Mary right at the very top of the tallest pinnacle above the uh, the tallest spire in the middle of the cathedral, which is uh, is a famous statue, although I would say slightly lost in all this forest of other pinnacles that surround it. But obviously it's a very impressive building. I think it's said to have very nearly the tallest nave in the world. It's the completed church with the tallest nave in the world. Apparently there's one in France in Beauvais, which is taller, but the church, that church or that cathedral was never completed. So officially it's got the tallest nave in the world. There are all sorts of things one can say. Uh, I mean, in Italian it's called the Duomo do Milano. So <laughs> he tries with his rather rubbish Italian pronunciation and accent to say... One thing William doesn't mention, as we move on, he'll talk about the interior, and I'm going to do that more in the next episode because um, it's quite a nice... He paints a nice picture of the daily goings-on in a cathedral in Italy at that time, so I'm going to leave that till the next episode. But uh, one particular sculpture that he doesn't mention, maybe came um, later, perhaps after his time, I don't know, or perhaps it was placed there from somewhere else, but... Um, it's the sculpture of St Bartholomew and it's quite gruesome because he was skinned alive for uh, promoting the, the Bible and Christianity. And so it's this rather gruesome figure of him. It's a bit like one of those models you get as a child of the human body. So you take away the skin and then you get just all the muscles left. Anyway, it's a bit like that. And then this skin is sort of draped over his shoulders and he's got this rather gaunt looking head as well. So it's, yeah, it's a, quite a gruesome sculpture of St Bartholomew there, which uh, if you go to Milan Cathedral, you can see. Again, it's got some of the tallest stained glass windows in the world as well. So you can look up all these facts and figures about it. Apparently, I think at the entrance as well, there's a sundial, which I think by luck and circumstances is said to be extremely accurate because of its location. I think it's on the, the floor but as you go into the entrance, but apparently people say you can almost literally set your watch by it because it's so accurate. Obviously, you know, there are lots of superlatives about it and uh, William is describing what he can about the exterior. So I'm going to stop here at this point. The next episode will begin with William describing the interior of Milan Cathedral and then a lot of the sights and sounds of Milan itself. Some of that I might have to judiciously edit. I don't know. This whole thing about doing the podcast is... Uh, 
I kind of realised as I'm doing it, I'm sort of rediscovering things that uh, some things I did sort of make a note of uh, when I originally transcribed the journals to explain them, and other things I'm sort of discovering again. Stuff like the Napoleonic Bridge, I had uh, obviously done a bit of research on before, but uh, stuff like the traditional headdresses of the ladies in Lombardy, I hadn't done. So this uh, podcast is also a journey of rediscovery for me as well as I read them. So there's kind of little quirky bits that uh, stick out, and then I think, oh yes, I'll uh, I'll investigate that a bit more. So it is actually nice, you know. I've just read the next section, and there's a a, a bit in there. Uh, I won't tell you now, but I just thought, oh, that's uh, I didn't remember noting that before. So, so, um, so as I say, I'm discovering just as much myself uh, about uh, the journals again. And uh, I think also because uh, there's probably an element, although at my age, all memories begin to fade quite quickly. But I think also the thing with this first journal was that I transcribed it a long time ago now in 2008. So it's a long time to remember what things were mentioned in it before. And also uh, what happened to a degree is when I was transcribing the journals later on, I then went back to the first journal and the way I transcribed it and sort of re-examined it and went through it again, did a bit more proofing of the text as well because uh, at the time I found the voice recognition software wasn't quite as accurate as it is now. So there were more mistakes in it. And I think there were things at the time that if I'd been transcribing it now... I would have looked into more at the time. So that may be an element as well when I'm I'm going through this first journal in much more detail. Okay, well, I think that's it for the moment. Thanks very much for listening to this latest episode. The figures on uh, the listenership have uh, now been readjusted to allow for the spike that occurred when uh, Samsung phones started arbitrarily just downloading podcasts here, there and thither. So I do now have a realistic figure on the numbers of people listening. And uh, as I said before, <laughs> you're a small but dedicated group of people. But do tell your friends, keep, uh, what's the word, evangelising about it. <laughs> Something like that, to use a religious term. Do tell your friends, do tell your family, anyone who you think might be interested in uh, mid-19th century history. I mean, I was listening to a thing about Dickens earlier today because it's Christmas and, of course, Christmas Carol comes up and everything. And it's interesting, you know, William is very much a contemporary of Dickens. They they were sort of born around about the same time. Dickens was born in 1812. So if you want to get an insight into the attitudes and sights and sounds of someone in the uh, 19th century who would very much be a figure in a Dickens novel maybe one of the uh, people who come to Scrooge's door asking him to give money for charity respectable middle class professional person then that would be William not linked to finance though linked to something a bit more practical like engineering which uh, later on his family became lawyers but at this time William's a proper engineer which uh, I think uh, personally I'm so I'm proud of <laughs> not a swindling banker <laughs> which Dickens had a few things to uh, say about too and lawyers anyway that's th- that's it if you have been listening thank you very much for doing so and uh, I hope you're going to look forward to the next episode mm-hmm.